Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. We're delighted to be back with you for this third series, in which we'll be speaking about policing in relation to mental health, animal rights advocacy, child abuse, domestic violence and more. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, review us on Apple or Spotify, head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you. It was getting late and the next thing you know, the guards pull up, the guys in terrorist town, immediately they were like, run. And I was like, what are we running for? We haven't done anything, we're just playing football. Before I could even finish that sentence, they were gone. When I finally seen my, some of my friends and my friend was like panicking, I was like, what's going on? Where's everybody? It's like, oh, they've, after taking one of the guys and they threw him into the van, they were beating him and his friend. And then they just threw them out and told them that they don't want to see them on the streets again. this episode, we're speaking to Israel about his experiences of policing as a young black man in Ireland. We've looked at the issues of policing and ethnicity in a number of different contexts already. In series one, Maho spoke to us about her experiences of reporting hate crime as a migrant, and as Steph told us about her detention having attempted to enter the country. As we'll see today, some of those issues of migrant status relate to Israel's experiences. But we're going to hear so directly about what it is to be a young black man policed in Dublin. For those who grew up learning to go to the police if you're in trouble, Israel's experience could not be more different. We'll also speak to Dr. James Carr of the University of Limerick, who's done significant research on the issues of race and policing. And Bashir Atakoya, Assistant Professor of Law in DCU and a member of the government's anti-racism committee, also shares his insights and experiences. We are deliberately commencing the series with this experience in the wake of the killing of George and Kensho. And we are incredibly grateful to Israel, a friend of George's, for finding the emotional capacity and space to share with us. There are many people in this country who do not experience policing this way and who need to hear about that lived experience. My name is Israel Ibanu. Uh, I live in Blanchestown. I am 20, oh my God, I'm 28 now. Well, I'm old. Um, I am an athlete. I am a referee. And I am a student currently studying applied social studies and social care in TUD Blanchetown. I do athletics, so I run 100 meters, 200 meters, and I do relay. And for punishment, I would do a 400 meter. But I wouldn't advise that for anybody uh, unless they really hate themselves and want to run. But yeah, no, I, I enjoy running quite a lot. And I enjoy football. I referee the matches, and I've been doing. I've been refereeing for about eight years now. And yeah, I'm I'm a Nigerian, and yeah, that's that's pretty much me. Uh, oh, I work in the hospital as well, as a HCA, in the mental health hospital. Um, I would like to work in. Um, well, I've done. I would like to work with separated children seeking asylum. That's where I would like to. Well, you know, 
with COVID, I don't think I'm going to get placement in that field, but um, I would like to go into that. Israel is clearly a considerate, empathetic young man who works hard to improve society for all. He was born in Nigeria and moved to Ireland with his family in 2004, aged 11. It's pretty interesting hearing him reflect on his first impressions of Angarda Shiakona. I didn't even realise when I first came to Ireland, like I didn't realise, you know, they were waving guards. I just thought it was security men because obviously in my view of, of, of police and is they actually say police, you know, and then, you know, I then I realised that it was meant to, like what guard and guard and economy means is to keep the peace or something like that. So I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like they're not really police. They're just kind of people that's there. If anything goes wrong, they, you know, they'll step in, you know, and I thought that was pretty, like, I was like, yeah, that's different. Like, you know, these guys don't really have, you know, as much, you know, like power. They're just there if anything goes wrong. That was in my head anyways when I was young. But um, I think my first experience was when I went into town with my mom and we were in Moore Street, um, right, like close to Henry Street. It was Moore Street where the marketplace is normally and there's a lot of African shops and stuff like that. And my mom was kind of like, you know, anxious, like we need to get off the street very quickly. And I was like, why, well, what's going on? And she said, like, if like if I stay, if we stay longer in there, like we have a chance of getting harassed by the guards. And I was like, for what? You know, and it was, it was a lot of fear coming from her that I didn't expect. I was like, well, what are they gonna do? Like, you know, you know, and she was like, no, just let's, let's start going. And from that day onwards, it was kind of like, you know, you know, if you see the guards, run. You know, remember, you, you're not you're not a full Irish citizen and all this kind of stuff. You know, when I came in at first and it was kind of like, don't get in trouble. Don't speak back at anybody. If anyone's if anyone's uh, calls you anything, don't fight. Don't make a fuss. Don't put yourself in trouble. You know, and, you know, that's how it's, that was like my first, you know, okay, do not do this so the guards don't come and, you know, take you away or the fear of being deported or all this kind of stuff was always in play because that's how they, when they came into the country, how my, like my mom came into the country, you know, and it was kind of like this fear of you can't take a step wrong but also you can't have the same opportunities of everybody else. You're kind of stuck in this bubble. And if you step out that bubble, you have now put yourself out there to, for anything to happen to you. And it's it's whatever they do, they can do whatever because according to them, you have no you have no full rights as an Irish citizen. Like, so that was, that was my first, well, okay, stay away from the guards. Don't do anything that the guards are going to bring, you know, kind of um, any kind of altercations with you as a person. So I think that was, it took me back a bit. If you're middle class, white Irish, chances are you were brought up to be told that if you get lost in town, find a guard. If you're in trouble, find a guard. We've heard in episodes how class can significantly affect that experience. And here Israel tells us that he was taught by his mother to avoid the guards and avoid making trouble. Don't raise your head above the parapet. Don't draw attention to yourself. We discussed with Maho how there's a question in the citizen application process about whether you've ever come to the attention of Gardi, which is really problematic. But Israel also discusses being told that non-citizens don't have the same rights as citizens. 
When it comes to how you are treated by the police, this is not the case. Your human rights, whether that's your right to life, freedom of assembly, non-discrimination or your right to a fair trial, these all apply equally whatever your relationship to the state. But Israel is very clearly learning at a young age that he does not have the same rights as others, that he can be treated differently by the police of the state. And as time passed, he saw this with his own eyes. And then I guess further down the line, you know, um, integrating with society and realizing how, you know, the guards would treat other um, other people compared to like black people, uh, you know, in my, around my area, it was kind of like I was taken back. Um, I remember there was a fight outside my school. There was a, there was a big, huge fight outside my school, and it was between two schools because I went to Hartstown and Blanchestown. And there was a Blake's, there's a school called Blakestown, um, just maybe like say 500 meters down, the, actually maybe like a, maybe a kilometer down the road, it's just literally down the road. And there was a big, huge fight. And like when we heard like that, it was one of, one of our friends in Blakestown that was just getting abused and he was less about 10 or 15 people. Like norm, this is a norm for us, like in Blanchestown to be like, you know, chased by like white people, like after school. Um, we have to take the long way home, but this is a number. This something happened that this was kind of like, you know, like it was a big uh, on a bigger scale. So we all ran down from like Harrisstown to the place, and the guards were there. And obviously, like it's not like we started there. We came to help our friend out of there, and the guards literally took us and pushed us to one side and started saying you know that we're trying to explain the story they're like no no you guys and people shouting no they definitely came down to cause harm they came down to do this and next thing the the people that were hitting my friends at the time were there standing there laughing and while we were there and they were asking us do we have anything in our bags do we have this i'm like go ask them like we just literally finished school you know go ask the guys though you know and then they looked around and saw that more and more crowd was coming and they like they basically told us to get out of the area. Like, you know, and I was like, we're waiting for a bus because there's a bus right outside the little in Blakestown and said, no, start. So we had to walk all the way into Blanchestown shopping center to get the bus. And while the other guys that started the whole thing and was beating on my friend was just, they were just free to walk around and do whatever they wanted, like, you know, and like they eventually told everyone to disperse, but we were the like you know labeled as the people that came to cause this havoc, you know that we left our school to come over um, and to start a fight or something like that, which was incorrect. But after that day, I think I was like, yeah, these guys are not here to to protect us. Like research on youth justice, particularly longitudinal studies like the Edinburgh Youth Study, which has been interviewing the same cohort of people over the last two decades, has found quite clearly that victim and offender are labels that can be easily incorrectly applied. When police come across young people who are engaged in a clash of some sort, that study found that the police attached the label of offender to the person who appeared to be doing wrong when they arrived, but that person may just have been responding or defending themselves. It's really important to see that there's a dynamic process at play, and one of the powers the police have is to label who is the victim and who is the offender. In criminological work, labelling is a really significant process. Once the police label a young person as bad or up to no good, others in society respond to that label. 
It doesn't have to involve prosecutions or anything. If members of a community see the police engaging with someone in particular ways, telling them to behave or leave or move on or whatever, then it tells those around that this young person is trouble in some way. It's really important to see the power of police actions. So we have then a potent combination where the police get to name and label who is up to no good and in applying that label can transform how others see that person. What makes this even more complicated is police culture. Police culture refers to the norms and values that influence how police make decisions. Global and international research finds that certain norms and values permeate all police forces, irrespective of the particular society. There is something about policing as a profession that inclines it towards certain values. These can be really helpful values that enable the police to undertake some of the worst aspects of their job, but they can also be really problematic. These values include a thirst for action, suspicion, isolation and solidarity, machismo, conservatism, pragmatism, as well as racism. And so the concern is that when police are faced with a split second decision, these are the values that underpin that decision consciously or subconsciously. Endless academic studies support and evidence a conclusion, therefore, that in making that split second decision as to who to label the victim and the offender, Factors like gender, race and class play a role. Maybe you're thinking, well, sure, the police are only human, but listen to how that is experienced and felt by the person on the receiving end. You know, at, at some point I even felt a bit subhuman, like, you know, because I was like, are we not, are we not all the same here? You know, does, is it them against us? Is it like their voice matters more than mine? So um, I was kind of like taken back about that as well. And these police actions occur in a context of serious racism and violence experienced at the hands of local white residents. As the years went on, it it got progressively worse. Um, We normally get chased by just random white... We know some of them um, as like a kind of notorious gang or whatever, but they they would chase you after school, they give people curfews. Um, you know, if you're not back in your estate by six o'clock, um, they're going to smash your house, they're going to burn your house down, we're going to beat you up, all this kind of stuff. Um, and we had to walk in groups so that this doesn't happen. And us walking in groups then turned into we're gangs, you know, but we weren't, we're just actually protecting ourselves. Most of, 90% of the time we're running away from these guys, you know, from like very dangerous areas like Fort Lawn, Mount View. Um, going towards Terrace Town area, um, there's Damstown, there's this graveyard there, and they actually would wait at that graveyard. And as soon as you come through, because it's a shortcut from Terrace Town walking back into like Onga and all that kind of stuff, um, they'll wait for you. So you start running. You know, they'll normally come in, in big numbers. They'll send one guy up you know, first, and you know, you think you're dealing with one guy. And then before you know it, you're surrounded by 10, 15 guys with one with baseball bats or one with a knuckle and you're there running again, you know. And um, yeah, like it was pretty hard for that. So we could, it's not like we could call the guards and be like, hey, this is what's going on. You know, can we put a stop to this? Or, you know, it was just like we didn't have a say, you know. And we couldn't also express that with our parents because they feel as well they don't have a say. They can't go to anyone to give out about it, you know. I asked Israel specifically why he felt he could not phone the guards. Because I feel like when that happens, you know, like like that fear again, you know, of oh, the worst is going to happen to you, you know, and 
they're not going to believe you. And, you know, when they get there, you know, the story can easily be changed. And we're just going to stand in there like, you know, eggs in our head. And everyone else now in, the, in that community then knows that we're the guys that call the guards. And it's going to be even worse on us for, you know, walking around that area. Academic research calls this the experience of being simultaneously over and under policed. Very quick to have police fingers pointed at you for alleged wrongdoing, but no protection from the police when you need it. And that lack of protection can lead to increased violence, sometimes police violence. What eventually happened is that obviously we got bigger and we couldn't be bullied as much. So we started fighting back and it became like all like uh, kind of almost like a racial thing, but it wasn't. It was like, I don't know why you don't like us, but we're not going to stand there and watch you, you know, hit us and stuff like that. And I think the worst one was we were in Terrace Town and we, I think we were playing football just at the benches there, the little park there. And it was getting late and the next thing you know, the guards pull up and the guys in Terrace Town say, oh, I'm not even from that, like that area. But immediately they were like, run. And I was like, what are we running for? We haven't done anything. We're just playing football. Then it's like, nah, before I could even finish that sentence, they were gone. And everyone else started running. And then by the time I was, my head first thing was like, I can't even run back down towards the Damastown area because I'm not with anybody else. So if I get caught there, I'm, that's it. Like, I'm going to get I'm gonna get beat up. Like, so I decided, no, I'm just going to go around the estate and just run as, as much as I could and hide somewhere. And um, when I finally seen my, some of my friends and my friend was like panicking, I was like, what's going on? Where's everybody? It's like, oh, they've after taking one of the guys and they threw him into the van. And well, I think it was 16 at that time, 16. Yeah. Later on, I found out that he just after telling me, oh, yeah, no, they ended up um, beating him and his friend. There and then they just threw them out and told them that they don't want to see them on the streets again. And I think that was actually reported to like the Finger County um, at the time, but like nothing, nothing was happening, you know. So that was the the fear of me. See the the guards, everybody is gone, really, like out of the place. You don't want to get caught because that's what's going to happen. Because I feel like thinking about it now that they couldn't actually bring us in on anything. And that's just how life was growing up for us, you know, in the area with them. The other encounters were seeing them as like, why are they here? You know, they were at every party we had. They were, if we had a concert, they were there. And um, recently with the Stormzy concert, like they came out full, you know, helicopter. Like it felt like we're at war. Like, like oh, you can't leave until we tell you to leave. Why are you guys having fun? Why are you guys doing this? And I was like, for me, I was like, this, this, this is what we have to deal with. Like, we are not allowed to progress. We're not allowed to do anything. We're not to celebrate each other, you know, in anything, in any way, without the guards coming there full on and saying, yeah, this is what are you guys doing here. It's, they knew that we're having this concert. They, you know, the the they approved this, you know. So why are we being treated like, you know, these guys that came out of the out of a sewer? and then held on, you know, like for me, it's just not right. Simple attempts by children to play sports were policed. The same happened when they tried to socialise in other ways. Israel's choice of words is incredibly revealing and powerful. He has been made to feel subhuman and like something that's climbed out of a sewer. 
I've tried to reflect on my own life. Certainly, there were times during abortion campaigns when you hear of a hospital trying to keep a dead woman on machines for the sake of a 12-week-old fetus that I wept for feeling that there were those in society who saw women as incubators first and foremost. But I got to see courts decide against that and a nation stand up for women's rights. To feel what Israel feels, to be made to feel that way by the body of the state that should be there to protect you and to not see a nation rising up against it, to see it accepted and even condoned. I can't relate. So we listen. We listen now to Israel tell of what has been the most damaging experiences with the police for him. I was finishing, I was finishing a night shift and I came into town, city centre, and I was like, I'm pretty tired. So I, I, oh, my bus was in like five, ten minutes. I was like, let me go to the, the shop in, in Deals in, in Abbey Street. Let me get a drink and then I'll get on the bus. So I was going over and I was crossing the road. There's like seven of us there. It's early in the morning. There's no traffic. Cross the road. The lights were red. Cross the road. Um, and then as on, upon getting to the end of the road, I see a guy come with a bicycle and he, he almost hits me. So I like shifted out of the way. And then this guy then starts circling around like in a circle, like a vulture. And he was like just staring me down. So I was like, what's going on? You almost hit me. He didn't even say sorry or anything. And you're still staring me down like, so what's the problem? And then um, I, then he came over to me as a circle, and I then looked at him. He was wearing a high vis, and I looked at it. I was like, "Oh, it's a guard." I was like, "Oh, it's a guard on a bicycle." Then he came over to me, and he was like, "Hey," I was like, "Hey, what's up? Like, is there a problem?" And he's like, um, "He goes, did you not see the man was red, the red, the red man?" And I go, "Are you seriously coming over and giving out to me after you almost hit me?" And there's seven other people there at the time. You know, and if you look right now behind you, everyone is doing exactly the same thing. If you're going to hold me on that, then hold everybody accountable. Don't just pick me out of everybody. And he was like, um, yeah, but did you not see that? I go, I did see the red man. And I also saw you almost hit me, you know. So if you, if you hit me, it will be a different case now. You know, you won't be having this conversation with me. I'll be on the floor going to the hospital. You know, you saw people and you didn't put the applied brakes or anything. You just went straight through them. And he was like, I feel like he felt undermined at that time. And then he started asking for my name. I go, hold on, am I under any kind of, am I under arrest or anything? Am I being detained? And he goes, no. I go, well, then have a nice day. Like, So then when I was about to walk off, he was like, get back here now. I was like, I turned around, I was like, for what? I'm not being detained, nothing. And he goes, you didn't give me a name. It's against the law to give me a name. I go, yeah, but if I'm doing something wrong. And he goes, yeah, you have done something wrong. I go, what have I done? He goes, you crossed the, the road while the man was red. And I go, there was no oncoming traffic until you came speeding by. And you almost hit me again. And then he started going back and forth. And he's like, don't give me a name. I'm going to take you to the station. I was like, no problem. Let's go to your sergeant. And you explain to your sergeant why you almost hit me. And let's, you know, I go, I'm pretty tired. I just finished work. I just want to go home. Can you let me go? And he was like, no, he was adamant. And then I think another guard came, you know, eventually. Um, and the guard was like, Let's do, like, and I explained everything to him. But he wasn't like in uniform. He was kind of like just dressed normal. And he said, you know what, um, basically, 
no, actually, someone else came first to lock the chain on the pole. And he heard what was going on. And he was like, is that what they're doing these days? Don't you have anything better to do? Like, And um, the other guy that came and basically asked me, he's like, you know, look, can you just get, like, just give me your name and your address and you'll be on your way. And I go, but for what, though? Like, what am I doing? Like, he goes, just make things easier. You can go. And I was like, okay, do you know what? I'm pretty tired. Like, I'm, I think I was my fifth night shift in a row. And I was like, I'm, I just want to get out of here. I want to go home and sleep. So I then gave him my name and my address. And then he told me, um, I'm going to get fined. And I go, fined for what? Like, you know, and he's like, you're going to get fined. And I go, yeah, but what did I do wrong? Like, what's the fine for? He said, interfering with something like this, interfering with guard or something like that. I don't know what he said. And some nonsense thing like this. And I go, okay, so how do I appeal this fine? Because I'm not willing to pay for that. And he goes, you see it on the sheet. So I took his, his badge number down, and then I went on my way. It was like 2018 now. And come 2019, yeah, 2019, I was going my placement. And um, I had to obviously fill out the guide vetting. So, like, I, I was waiting on my placement. And uh, when I filled out the guide vetting, it came back that I had... Uh, uh, it was pen- a pending court case, so I was like, I "Have a pending court? I've never, I've never been in trouble. I've never done. I haven't been arrested. I have a court case." And it's like, "Yeah, it said on it, like you know." And but it said that whatever it is, like it's not bad for me not to get my my guard event cleared. I just had to wait until the court case was over for the outcome for me to then go ahead and go. So now everyone has started their placement. And I couldn't because I have this pending court case. So I had to then go and find out what this pending court case was. And then I started ringing the, my local guard because I haven't received any letter to say I have a court case or anything. I was unaware of this court case, which was actually in two weeks' time. Um, and so then I called the local guard and I said, hey, I said my name. I told them, you know, I've been, I've seen that I have a pending court case. And then he then responded back to me and said, you know, um, like, yes, you have one. I go, what is it for? And he said it was obstruction of traffic. I just said, you know what? That's no problem. I go, who do I speak to? Like, he goes, so I had to call back the same guard that did this, you know, send me to court or brought me to court. Like, I had to call him personally. So I called him the first time he wasn't, you know, in the office. I had to send an email and I called again the next day. He finally picked up. And then he was still giving out about it. He goes, you know, a lot of people like you think that you're above the law. You want to be a smart ass or anything. I was like, honestly, I'm the most unproblematic person you can find. Like, I literally do not do any harm. I don't care about anything. You know, I don't even want to see you. That's how bad it is. So, like, for you to come in, you know, I felt I was being singled out. And that's why I was standing my ground. And I've seen everybody else, if it's such a crime, I've seen everybody else committing that same crime. And you were doing nothing about it. And I'm here standing. And then he then asked me, like, you know, what do I need this for? I go, oh, I'm, I'm going on placement. Um, and then he was like, um, right, I am, I'm going to speak to the judge. And um, I don't want it to be the reason why I stop, I stop your, your future, or, you know, you progressing in life. And I was like, well, you didn't send me a letter. If I didn't know about it, you know, and I didn't show up to court, you guys would have came down, bust down my door and dragged me into the prison to jail for missing court, you know, and held me there until whatever. 
you know, it was time to go to court again over what over obstruction of traffic. That one really hit me like differently. Like, and I was like, that was very, how can I say? That was very under the root. Like, you know, that was premeditated, planned that if I didn't go for my graduate, my whole life would have turned upside down even more. You know, I would have had, you know, to go to court and say, this is what's happening, you know. And it was, I, that. that's what really, like, it got to me. That's a really striking point, that he was not informed about this. That if he hadn't been seeking guard vetting, he might not have known about the case. And of course, failing to appear at court could have landed him in so much more trouble. It affected me a lot because, I, I, like I said, I do athletics. like, And every time I come to traffic lights or whenever the gun, the gun goes in my, in my race, like I'm never the quickest starter, but like the reaction is so late because now I'm like reacting to everything. I'm like, I, I really don't want to, I really don't want to do this. I, you know, I, I, I started a lot slower. Everything just started moving a bit. Like, you know, like I, it affected me my whole life crossing the road. Even I was like, should I even cross the road? Okay. I'm running late. I can't even cross the road. There's no lights. There's no cars here. You know, um, it affected me very, very badly. And it's like for a good three, four months, like we've been doing block sessions with my coach. He was like, your reaction is, is, is like a truck. It's like you're starting like a truck. And it, nah, it, it got me really bad. And I started late on my placement. So I had to do extra hours, put me under more stress. And yeah, that was, that was probably the, the, I know there was more serious incidents, but for me personally, that was like a abuse of power there and like saying, look, I can do whatever I want. I say whatever I want and I can get you in, in jail. I can get you in prison. I can label you as this guy that's done the worst. But I, I, you know, I haven't, you know, so that would be like probably the kind of the worst incident I've had with the guard. Guardy have to appreciate that the person they engage with can experience that engagement in all kinds of ways. And so they must engage with everyone, particularly when using their powers with respect, dignity and without discrimination. It's not the way it's supposed to be, you know, since we're all supposedly equal, but we don't we don't feel we don't feel equal at all. We feel very subhuman, you know, in the society. And so racial profiling happens not just at the state level in terms of institutional racism, but we forget often at times that institutions are run by people. Bashir Atakoyu, my DCU colleague, talked to me in detail about racial profiling. And so it is the people uh, that we need to focus on. And so when we're talking about racial profiling at a state level, we should look at it from the individual level first. And that goes back to, I suppose, um, self-reflecting on your own prejudice, self-reflecting on your privilege, because let's be uh, uh, frank about it, um, People of a ethnic minority background do not have the same privileges as the uh, homogeneous uh, population of Ireland. And so we need to start looking at difference at that basic level. Let me give you an example. And I think it's always a, a, a good idea to give examples and explaining these things. Um, so in our schools, for example, when we call out... when when a uh, a black person, I'm just going to go straight to it, when a black person reports on an incident of, of racial, racial bullying, let's say, uh, and it's reported to the school principal and the racial element isn't recorded, it's recorded as mere bullying, that transpires later on in life. 
when the police say, we didn't stop you because of your race. We've stopped you because you've committed an offense or we've suspected you've committed an offense. That becomes a problem because we're not able to identify the race-based element versus the actual crime. And I know there's the saying that, you know, uh, justice is blind, but justice is also colorblind. And that is a negative thing. I know people are more inclined to say, well, that's a good thing. Surely equality shouldn't be based on race. But when you look at the criminal justice system in America, for example, or in the UK, and you see that the prison systems is overburdened with black people, then you cannot say or make those arguments that justice is blind. Justice is colorblind, and it shouldn't be. Uh, so we need to start acknowledging the race-based element. And for example, let me give my own exa per a personal example. A couple of weeks ago, or months ago, I was driving and a police person stepped beside me. It was an undercover car. Uh, I didn't know that, of course. My friend who was dropping home said, oh, that's an undercover car. Okay. So I looked over, he smiled and, you know, I uh, continued my road, you know, looking at the, the road. The guardie beside me decided to pull behind in traffic so all the other cars had to go back. So they were directly right beside me so that they can join right behind me and follow me. And then after two minutes of following me, they stopped me. They stopped me, asked necessary questions, figure out that there was nothing wrong with the car. Then they started asking me for uh, my social media contacts, if I knew so-so, so-and-so person. Of course, me being a lawyer, I asked them, why was I stopped? Was I being suspected of anything? They didn't like that. They don't like when you know the law because, it, it, I don't know, for whatever reason, it appears that maybe, I don't know, I'm questioning their authority. Whatever the case may be, it transpired that they had nothing against me, but they decided to take the car. They took the car. So the next day I went to go to the guard station. Why did you take the car? I didn't produce a logbook. Surely that's not a crime. I'm not supposed to carry the logbook with me when I'm driving the car. And so when I asked them, why did you reverse in traffic to follow me? They said they were suspected of me committing a crime. What was the crime? They couldn't tell me. Thankfully, the case is with GSOC and we'll see. But the point being is that by looking into the car and seeing two black people in the car and you had no excuse to follow us, or no reasonable excuse to follow us. That is an example of racial profiling. Now, I can't call it that because the Gardaí will say, no, we have grounds to stop you if we have reasonable suspicion. And so I can't, as a black man, say, yes, that's racial profiling in truth because we don't have that data. We don't have that, uh, I suppose, collection of statistics to say that racial profiling happens within the Gardaí. Now, we do have reports that suggest that the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, for example, have already said that uh, a report on uh, incidences uh, with the police and the Roma community have told us, for example, that racial profiling does happen within their community. We've been told via several reports that the Gardaí Shia operates a culture of us versus them in their culture. So how are we to trust the people, the guardian of the peace, so-called Gardashiakana, if we can't go to them to protect us, if they are literally chasing us down on the road by virtue of asking color alone? And this happens a lot. It's unreported, which is why I can't, I suppose, I give you more examples about it because I can't say this does happen without the statistics. But as a black man living in Ireland for the, uh, a vast array of my life and having a you know, vast community in the black community, this is a regular occurrence. Uh, and I'm with the Anti-Racism Committee and this is a, uh, you know, a top priority issue that we are trying to address, this racial profiling. One of the Gardaí used to be a, a school colleague of mine, a school peer of mine in the secondary school. We grew up together. 
<laughs> I don't know if he remembers me, but I certainly remember him. And it goes back to my point. And this is somebody I used to play black versus white football uh, with. And he was obviously on the white side. And this is what happens in our society when we allow such innocent uh, games to occur, when we split groups uh, uh, by their identity. We say, you belong to that group versus we belong to this group. And when it's a particular group, the white group, that always wins. And that transpires later in life that now you have a uniform that allows you to act in any way you want, um, that becomes a problem. And so institution and state level discrimination or racism and what have you is important to address, but it goes back to the root social issue. I put to Israel the refrain I hear on social media a lot, which is, it's not as bad as America. I hate this refrain. It betrays the experience that is being had every day in Ireland. And if nothing else, it sets the bar pretty low for what kind of society we want. I wanted to know how he felt when he heard that. Yeah, like it's not as bad as America. You know, that's because America has, they're, they're very open with it, you know. And, you know, they they have laws protecting black people. Um, and that's why the, the black people there are, there's, there's a huge amount of this community. Um, and it just because they're not as bad as America, you know, because they're not wielding guns, um, doesn't mean that it's not happening here, it's present, and it's just as effective. And just because America, everything gets out into the whole world, you know, and anything that happens in Ireland, it'll take, like, you know, a big, huge kind of build-up for it to get out to the whole world, you know. And it, it happens, and it's, it's just as traumatic for any black person here, you know. It's just that they don't feel like it's it, it weighs the same, like, you know, weight, um, doesn't mean anything. You're still getting it. You're still getting the the abuse of power from them. You're still getting the the racism. You're still getting discriminated against. You know. So what's the difference? You know. Well, like in America, the black people have come together and created their own kind of against all odds. They have their own TV station. They have their own you know, like platform where they can actually do stuff and promote themselves and, you know, get out there, you know, and it's just one of those things like, you know, you have the same people that would like here who love black culture, you know, they love black music, they listen to it, but as the first sign of anything goes bad, they're straight to call them, yeah, they're bad, stay away from them, first people to discriminate, and then at the end of the day, they'll still be going to a Drake concert, uh, dancing to the movies, doing TikToks, all this kind of stuff. A couple of facts on policing and racism in Ireland. In 2004, the year Israel moved to Ireland, the Ionan Human Rights Audit of Angarda Siakona was published. This had been commissioned by the guards themselves. It involved in-depth interviews with guardi, NGOs and members of different communities. Its findings on racism are stark, concluding that Angarda Siakona is institutionally racist. This means not that all members are racist, but there is a collective failure on the part of the organisation to provide appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. Importantly, focus groups conducted with Serving Gardi identified very particular views in relation to Nigerians and members of the traveller community. Six different focus groups claimed that Nigerians played the race card when stopped for traffic violations. Four groups said there was more criminality among Nigerian, traveller and refugee communities. 
and yet zero evidence could be produced to substantiate any of this. Dr James Carr, an expert on policing and racism from the University of Limerick, spoke directly to this issue. You know, when we think about, you know, that crime is associated with a particular identity, you know, when we think it's got to do with a racialized community, we think about it if, if it's associated with blackness, for example, if it's associated with Muslimness, just to keep these distinct for a couple of seconds, you run the risk of this sort of circular proof um, idea going on, you know, that, okay, X community are associated with a particular form of crime or criminality. Therefore, as a police officer, I'm going to police this community differently, either subconsciously or else by, by order. I'm going to focus my energies towards this community. Um, and then that obviously you have higher rates of policing, you have over-policing of a community. And then obviously you're going to, because criminality is within every community, right? You find criminality within this community that's been absolutely in the crosshairs of policing. And then that stands to sort of justify the policing measures that went on. Now, if we think about it in the context of the United Kingdom, um, and we saw some of the uh, some of the, the issues associated, for example, around uh, child grooming gangs and so forth, and you know, in, in Rotherham and Rochdale and so forth, and the, the risk that that it would run, looking focusing in on, we we'll say, just particular communities and ignoring all of the other people who are involved in child sexual exploitation, child sexual abuse, uh, for example. What's, what's suffering there? Number one, victims of the crime. They're not getting the treatment they deserve. Their cases aren't being handled. Uh, secondly, their, their groups, far-right groups and otherwise, will take their, their, um, their experiences of crime uh, and racialize it and then have, with no real recourse to the victims involved. Um, and thirdly, the people who are engaging in the same sort of activity in other communities, non-racialized communities, or racialized differently, um, are getting away without engaging within a particular crime. So there's a circular proof kind of thing going on, or, or potentially can go on within these communities. James went on to talk about concepts that exist in society of different identities and told us how these are generalized in relation to concepts of blackness. You know, if we go back through time and the, the historical sort of constructions of blackness, especially black men, we think of um, hypersexuality, aggression and all these sort of things. And the notion then that's coming in here that this subconsciously informed the, the understandings of the police that are involved in this particular horrible tragedy. Um, so we have policing on the basis of perception of identity, of that somebody from the Irish community is going to be a member of a particular uh, prescribed organisation, that somebody from the Muslim community is going to be uh, always inclined to doing X, Y or Z. When I was doing uh, research in the past, I remember actually outside of my own research, I remember recently enough hearing of a young Muslim woman coming down, I think, from Northern Ireland into the Republic. And she, the bus was stopped or whatever train she was on was stopped. And, and, and the only person who was given attention to by the guards was the black Muslim woman on the, on, on the bus. A big part of all of this is the lack of evidence because Angarda Siakona does not record ethnicity data of those they interact with. That report in 2004 called for this data to be recorded and to this day the policing authority has repeatedly demanded it. Most other jurisdictions do record this and it enables us to interrogate their views even further. And when those views are interrogated and tested, racism among the police is often found. 
Indeed, other more recent reports repeatedly confirm experiences of racism at the hands of the police. Whether that's the data produced by the Irish Network Against Racism or the report of the Ombudsman for Children who found evidence of racism in the removal of a blonde child from a Roma family. Some will say, should the police are just a reflection of broader society? But there's a few things to think about this. Firstly, does it imply an acceptance of broader racism? Secondly, it ignores the research that says that police culture itself breeds and exacerbates racism. Thirdly, the level of powers the police have, the ability to detain, use force, even kill, demands that they work hard to counter any such balances. The consequences of not doing so are far too vast. Fourthly, it pays scant regard to the type of lived experiences that Israel and Bashir share with us today. When someone says or uh, is being called racist, often we get, you know, um, closed up. We get, at, we feel attacked almost. Our integrity has been attacked, but that's not the point. Again, it goes back to the point that we didn't come up with the definition of racism. We were taught what racism was. Uh, I grew up here in Ireland on the education system. So all my values, principles, and everything I know is from the Irish system. And so I've learned racism from the Irish people. And so it's time to acknowledge that racism does happen and to internalize that and not to see it so much as an attack, but as an opportunity. Uh, an opportunity to reflect on the type of society that we want, on recognizing who our fellow citizens are and recognizing that being Irish is, does not equate to whiteness, that there are, uh, I suppose, a variety of Irishness. So taking action to combat this internally is hugely important. If I look at the experiences of anti-racism, what do we see within Garda Shikana? We see some really good actors inside there. We see some individuals um, within Garda Shikana who've been really strong in trying to challenge racism over time, um, whether it's through their um, ethnic liaison officer program, whether it's through their diversity uh, office, you know, the name has changed a bunch of times now, but there's been some really good actors within there who've done their bit to uh, try and improve reporting of racism, for example, to try and help people um, in, in terms of, you know, making sure that if they have been assaulted, whatever it might be, that they, they're supported properly. We've seen more positive moves of late. If we look at what's happened in, within the Department of Justice, we see anti-racism committee. We see also the report and the, the revision, if you will, of the hate speech legislation, which was not working at all, which seems to have been almost like by open admission, something that was there um, just to tick a box anyway. Um, and we see hopefully hate crime legislation coming through as well in the next little while. So we have, they're quite strong in terms of potential and what they can do. We also see uniform revision within Angardi Shikona. We see a hate crime strategy within Angardi Shikona and how it's, how it's identified. Again, these are really positive moves, and we need to see these really come to their to really come to their fruition over the next short time. It can't be it can't be too long. If it's not addressed sooner, if anti-racism isn't addressed sooner within Angardi Shikona, um, what are we dealing with? Well, you know, there have been you know, discussions about training and so forth within the Guardian in the last six months, a year or so. Um, we'll see how, how they bear out. But in, in terms of my own research, I know that members of communities, I, if they report racism at all, have had very negative experiences of reporting it. Um, so much so that it, it hampers trust in people reporting racism to, to, to the Gardaí. There's no point in reporting it. Um, 
If they do report it, it's not taken seriously. Like I said, they'll be asked for evidence for something that maybe they cannot provide, which again sort of jars with definitions of how we understand what a racist crime is or what a racist incident is. Uh, I, I'm not going down this whole route of a few bad apples, all right? Because that, that's not how we see this. I think there is either something is allowed to maintain or it's something is challenged at the level of the institution. You can't choose who you're going to police and how you're going to police a crime, right? You can't say, I'm going to, to police hate crime meted out on this group in a certain way, but not that group in another way. That's not doing your job. We're all paying our taxes here as, as residents in the state and citizens within the state. But we have, if we have these problems of incidents of racism by members of Angarda Shia we have experiences of good practice of members of Angarda Shia responding to racism, but we need consistency in the anti-racism piece and we need consistency in challenging the racism within Angarda Shia There are serious debates in academic and policy circles over whether procedural changes like changing uniforms or training simply tweak the system without doing something which more fundamentally impacts on how racism operates at the institutional level. For those in the Nigerian community, the killing of George Inchenko is extremely worrying and Israel puts this in a wider context. You know, it wasn't even from the past, it was the passing of Toy, Toyosi, Shutebe in 2010 when he got stabbed in terrorist town. Oh, it was a racial attack, you know, and what happened? Tayosi Shitabe was a 15-year-old killed when he was walking home from the National Aquatic Centre with a group of friends. One of the girls in his group asked a white man they passed for a cigarette light. A row broke out with name-calling. It turned into a fight and the group fled, but the two brothers, Paul and Michael Barry, followed in their car. They found the group and Paul approached them. When Toy walked towards Paul, Paul stabbed him in the heart. The brothers were charged with the killing. Paul was found dead the morning the trial was due to begin and his brother was found not guilty. There was no change, like, you know, there's no hate crime speech. Like, anyone can say anything towards me and then I, if I react, it's assault. So where's the protection for me? It's a free for all. Then that means we can then bash, bash African people. We can bash um, foreign people, foreign nationals coming into the country, and it's and nothing's gonna happen. So how do we feel equal? How don't we feel subhuman? You know, because that's what it is. And if if that's happening, because as the guards, they 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 don't make the law. They you know they 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 you know partake in law like they basically. They act out what what is said in the law, so like we need to push for that kind of narrative that if 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 Ireland truly cares about the foreign nationals coming into Ireland, then they need to put that protective you know thing. Not even say, oh no, it's bad. What's going on? Let's put down a legislation that you know hate crime bill or you know a George and Kentro bill that you cannot say anything bad. You can't, you can't say anything of hate towards um, another person. Ten years ago, this community cried for that loss and looked to the state to provide additional protections. But, they feel, nothing happened. And now they mourn George Anchenko. I know everybody right now is, is distraught. They're very disheartened. Um, like I've the guys like because I grew up with George and like 
it's everybody like when we went to the balloon release uh, i think that's when i seen the most like all the guys we all grew up together and they don't even look like you can even conversate with them anymore they are distraught like the whole community is is angry the whole community is afraid and also very cautious and it's a very worrying thing to have that there's no there's no reassurance the only reassurance we got was um yes all the the things that was put online was fake you know um and all oh, for this not to happen again but still like there's no like i said there's nothing that's put in place that if so that this doesn't happen again so that everyone you know if you're about to act you're like okay let me think twice there's something put out there and we can't do this to them you know so everybody's everybody's down and out right now and people are then you know it's 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 really bad because now it's a cycle because George saw he didn't see but he was around when Teosi got stabbed you know so and it has it has that effect and now it's it's whirling around now you know his brother his brother his sisters and even the whole community that's been heavily affected have seen this happen you know so now it's going to have an effect again where we don't know who's next you know, everyone's kind of really wary and, and, and afraid. You know, and even when I was going out for the first time, my mom kind of said, be careful out there. It's like, I haven't heard that in a very long time. Like, be careful out there. I was like, I'm, I was like, oh, I'm going to the protest. She's like, yeah, be careful out there. You know, and a lot of the people that are very angry at their youths because they're more connected with the society right now. They're still in school. I'm I'm happy that the schools are closed because if the schools were open, it'd have been chaos times two. You know, all the violence that they're saying they're seeing is not by, you know, his friends, you know, it's by the youths, the fourteen year olds, fifteen, sixteen year olds. And they're the ones angry because they expect like you guys are my friends. You know, why are you saying so why are you saying all these things about it? Like he he, he could be my brother, you know, he could be anything and in their way, that's the only way of kind of getting and kind of expressing themselves because nobody's going to help them. It's like, you know, and we can't step out of line. You know, we can't have mental health issues. You know, we can't, you know, stray off and, you know, go in. And let's say if we did something bad, like rub a shop, it's like everybody is, all black people rub shops. You know, we can't go and, like, even dating you know, someone that's Irish, like, it's like, you know, the jokes and the remarks you hear, like, you know, it's it's very bad. You go into the shops, like, even especially that Eurospark, because my school was close to it. And when you go in there, the security guard follows you all, all through until you're done, you're shopping, you know. And back then, we're like, why are you following us? Like, we're here to, like, we're kids. We're going to, like, where else if we're in our uniform, if you're really, if we're going to do something bad, like, you can just come to school and say, this is what happened. You know, we know not to do that anyways. We don't want our parents coming in. You know, we don't want the guards involved. So it's like we're well-behaved all the time. And the ones that deviate from being well-behaved and, you know, you know all this kind of stuff, um, it's made, it makes it worse. Um, the community is, re- is very, very upset. And, you know, like I've lived around here for so long and it just feels weird. Even the people, no one's... No one wants to speak to and to you as like as your friend and say, hey, what's up? Like, everyone's like, you know, they nod their head and they're going home. Nobody's interacting anymore. 
And it's, it's a very dangerous situation because at that point, they have no one to speak to, you know, and it's, it's, it's very difficult right now for the whole community. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to even, you know, be in Blanchestown and, you know, walk around the streets and know that yeah, this has happened and a lot of people feel happy that it happened. You know, it's like it, he deserves it and all this kind of stuff. He's a human being. And, you know, like I've, I work I work in a mental health hospital and like that would be the last resort. The last, We have techniques in, in this place where we can disarm somebody without hurting them. Like, you know, it's called TMVA. We have restraints techniques that without hurting, you know, this person, you know. And honestly, like that just shows how inhumane it is. I even heard in the video when the guy and um, the guy that shot him, like I heard, got him. Like in my head, I'm like, got what? Like, what'd you get? Did you get a rat? Did you get a dog? Did you get, what'd you get? Got him. For me, that's how they feel towards black people, you know. That yeah, we can definitely call the you know, this armed support unit to this one person that we all can't take down for some weird reason. So we decide we're gonna definitely shoot him. So it's that that really it really hit us. We we've dissected it and like we're not as we're trying to be close together like we were before when TLC died. Um, but it's this time it's a lot more difficult because a lot of people are still carrying that trauma from that time to now, you know, and it's 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 very, very disheartening. Like, you know, and a lot of people are like, why are we even working hard? Like, what's the point? The Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission is currently investigating the death. That investigation will very much focus on whether policies and procedures were applied. It's not the role of GSOC to ask whether those policies and procedures were appropriate. Often the reports of GSOC investigations are not made public, just the outcomes. Although given the public interest, we may hope that this will be published. It was disheartening for me to see at a protest that in a community that's very multicultural, very diverse, it was still only uh, the majority was um, black people there. And maybe two, two Irish white people were there. Maybe one Polish guy was there. And the Polish guy said, listen, I, he goes, do you know why I'm here? It's because next could be me, you know. And they feel discriminated against as well. So if these kids grow up with this like we did, it's going to be 10 times worse. They're going to be a lot more angrier. And they were born here. So, you know, they're Irish. as They don't have anywhere to go to after this. This is their home. So that's why they're fighting for it. Israel's experience demonstrates so clearly how deep the issue of racism runs and how fundamentally damaged the relationships with the police can be. These are huge challenges for us as a society and for Angarda Shikwana to address. I'm incredibly grateful to Israel for taking the time to speak to us about something so personal. Thanks also to Bashira Takoya of DCU and James Carr of UL for sharing their insight and perspective. Thanks also to my producer, Tony Groves and Brian at Cruz Ahead. Next week, we'll be talking about policing and mental health. Thank you for your continued listening and please do share and recommend and subscribe at patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack for the price of a cup of coffee a month.